Ibn Battuta, who lived from 1304 to 1369 CE, was a Muslim traveler and scholar who left his native town of Tangier, Morocco in 1325 CE, or 725 on the Muslim calendar. He was 22 years of age when he set out for Mecca and Medina, and though he felt sorrowful about leaving his friends and family behind, he noted that he felt compelled by an overmastering impulse and a long-cherished desire to visit those glorious sanctuaries. However, after making those journeys, he continued to travel as far as China before returning to Tangier 30 years after his departure and writing about his adventures abroad in a travel narrative known as the Rilla. This podcast features fictionalized accounts of Ibn Battuta's travels as described in his Rilla and attempts to authentically reconstruct the source material while also filling in some of the narrative gaps. The passages that have been fictionalized recount his observations of and interactions with women during his travels with the aim of illustrating how influential they were to his overall perception of the culture in which they lived. Chapter 1. Ibn Battuta in Mecca The holy city of Mecca is full of pleasant sights, sounds, and smells. I arrived there with a pilgrim caravan from Tunis, with whom I had explored other notable cities in the Hijaz. As I visited its holy sites, I could not help but notice how clean and well-dressed the citizens were. Their garments were often white and appeared as fresh as new-fallen snow. They are an upright and just people who conduct themselves well in front of foreigners, as I would expect the inhabitants of a city that attracts a constant stream of visitors and merchants. My interactions with them were nothing but pleasant. During my first full day there, I went to the marketplace to purchase some rations for the journey ahead. I cannot escape the smell of perfume, no matter where I was or what vendor I visited. Not that I minded it much. For a few seconds, I was convinced that I'd entered a spacious royal garden with a sense of lily, rose, and lavender being carried on the lazy afternoon breeze, rather than a crowded, hot, and noisy market. Indeed, the perfume vendors did not feel the need to call out their wares, as they never suffered a lack of customers. So many women were gathered around each one I came across so that you could barely see the seller or his merchandise. Sometimes the women would put it on right after they purchased it. Each woman I saw was incredibly beautiful. I bought five ukia of salt from an older gentleman and, unable to contain my curiosity, I asked him about the success of the perfume sellers. It is a marvelous thing, he replied. Never in all of the towns that I have sold my goods have I seen women so pious and modest. They are so afraid of offending the noses of other worshippers in the mosques that they would rather go hungry for a night just to afford a new bottle of perfume. I went to a mosque on Thursday night and, surely enough, the entire place was filled with sweet aromas. And though I am a man of devotion, I must admit that I found it hard to concentrate during prayer, being unused to such things. The women there were dressed in their finest clothes, which were elegant and clean. Such dutiful and seemly people can be found nowhere else in the Hijaz. Chapter 2 Ibn Battuta and the Golden Horde The Mongolian women hold a higher position in society than the men. As I was leaving Karam to meet the emir of Ozbeg Khan, I rode alongside the wagon train of the emir's wife. Her wagon carried a rotund tent made of fine blue cloth. The windows and doors on the wagon were open, allowing me to see her and her handmaidens sitting inside, who were all ornately dressed and incredibly beautiful. I was amazed at the number of wagons that were needed to carry the other maidens of her retinue 
for there were many, and each tent must have contained four or five women. When we arrived at the emir's encampment, the emir's wife exited the tent. I could see that her outfit contained multiple loops, which were then taken up by thirty or so handmaidens, so that none of the cloth touched the ground as she went to greet him. When she had done so, they drank and ate together. I decided not to approach the emir while he and his wife were together, for fear that my presence would disrupt their company and displease them, most especially the wife. I was able to meet with the emir after she had left on her own volition. What I found most surprising during my journey to the court of Ozbeg Khan was that such freedoms are also enjoyed by common women and the wives of merchants. The emir and I were in his wagon tent, engaged in friendly conversation about the differences in the practices of the Muslims there versus those in Tangier, and it was quite an interesting discussion, until he noticed how I was staring at the wagon of a wife rolling past us, and decided to address my fixation. Do they not have wagons in Tangier? I shook my head. Not like these, and especially not ones carrying richly dressed women. Truly, I tell you, the wife in the wagon I had seen was wearing garments with loops on them for maidens to carry just like those of the emir's wife. The woman's following was much smaller, of course, but this did not deter my fascination with her ensemble. I almost commented on the fact that the women of this country were not veiled, to return to our conversation of differences, but I thought better of it. Instead, I asked, Where is her husband? The emir looked outside. It took him a few seconds to respond. There, the emir pointed the tip of his index finger nearly pressing against the net-like material that covered the window pane so that we could see out, but no one else could see inside. The gentleman with the wool cloak and the high hat is her husband. Really? I gawked. He is hardly dressed differently from her manservants. The emir laughed at my surprise. Husbands do not always accompany their wives when they travel. More often than not, the wives travel with their own servants and guards. The same goes for my wife. Are you not worried that she will think herself better than you or try to have affairs on her trip? The emir looked at me quizzically. Do you really distrust your wives that much where you come from? My wife and I conduct our business as we see fit. She makes her own diplomatic journeys, and I make mine. Perhaps if you let your wives have more autonomy, you will have no need to suspect them of rebelling against you or cuckolding you. The emir's response made little sense to me. However, when I reached the court of Ozbeg Khan, I realized that this logic was one that was ingrained in the culture. I must admit that, though this kind of arrangement with women would not work in Tangier, it seemed to function well within the Mongolian society, and the kindness that was shown to me by the women was unparalleled, as you will see later on. Chapter 3 Ibn Battuta Meets the Katoons The day after I met the Khan, I met his wives, or Katuns. The first Katun I visited was named Tai Dula. She is the queen and mother of two sons. When I went to meet her at her encampment, she was surrounded with servant women, both young and old, who were cleaning cherries on silver platters. Tai Dula herself was cleaning cherries on a golden platter. She looked up at me with a kind smile and welcomed me in. I told her that I was a scholar of law, and she was greatly impressed. She made eye contact with one of the younger servants. Bring our esteemed guest some kumis. The servant nodded hastily and disappeared into one of the tents in her camp. Shortly after, she returned with a small cup of the curdled liquid, which is made of mare's milk. 
It is a staple drink of the Mongolians, and they have it with every meal. I could tell by its pungent aroma that I was not going to enjoy it, but I understood that Taidula was offering it to me as an act of great respect. I sipped it just to be polite, then passed it to my travel mates under the pretense of generosity. The next day, I went to the camp of the second Katun, Quebec. She was sitting on a chaise, dutifully reading the Quran. I introduced myself hastily, not wanting to interrupt her. She scarcely looked up from her reading before waving over one of her servants to serve me kumis. My company left her shortly after. The third Katun is called Bayalun. She is the daughter of Andronicus III Peleologus, the Emperor of Constantinople. She sat on a bejeweled throne when we came to meet her. She had the most diverse retinue I had ever seen, which included a multitude of servants, eunuchs, and chamberlains. Bayalun greeted us warmly. Tell me, how far are you men from your homelands? I had been traveling this way and that for so long that I truly could not measure the distance. My other travel companions appeared to have the same problem. Our distance from home is too great to fathom, I replied. It was at this that she began to weep out of pity for our plight. You must miss your families so much, she said through sobs. I tried to assure her that we were all right, but to no avail. I realized that it was she who was homesick, and that we foreigners served as a reminder that her position was not all that different, despite the fanciful life she lived. She was eventually able to calm herself down and clean her face with a kerchief. She then ordered for a meal to be prepared, and we ate with her. When my company was ready to leave, she put a hand on my shoulder. Please, keep in touch and do not hesitate to meet with me if there is anything you need. I thanked her profusely for the kindness she had shown me, and she was nice enough to send food to our encampment after we had departed from her presence. Unfortunately, I do not recall the details of my visit to the fourth Katoon, but I remember thinking that she was one of the most generous and kindest Katoons that I had met. If you're still with me, I would like to thank you for listening to this podcast. I would also like to give a special thanks to Dr. Hettinger for allowing me to do this for my final project for Medieval Travelers. It was a really fun class, and I had a lot of fun creating this project and really making history come alive.